Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. The uh, deep roots that I have in the technology world, I mean, I'm a consulting analyst to the ICT industry with interests, however, that go way, way beyond that industry. Those deep roots give me a really broad knowledge base that supports my ability to reach wide, to exercise my curiosity in the same way that the roots of a tree reach widely to support its trunk, which in turn, of course, provides support for the forest canopy. The canopy spreads wide, leaves touching leaves, branches and twigs interweaving, to not only stabilize the trunk below, but to create a vast solar panel that feeds the forest. In his book, The Wild Trees, one of the best books I've read in a very long time, author Richard Preston tells the story of a small group of people who have made it their mission in life to protect the world's largest trees, primarily redwoods and Douglas firs, from clear-cut logging. Now, these are located in the deep, unknown valleys of the Pacific Northwest and are hundreds of feet tall and absolutely spectacular. And the cool thing is that only this one small group of people knows where they are. Now, the charismatic leader of these tree-defending renegades is a guy named Steve Sillette, a botanist who describes his first trip to the canopy of these trees in the beginning of the book. This was so much more than climbing a tree. First, using a crossbow, he and his companions shoot an arrow over the lowest most branch, which is itself more than 100 feet above the forest floor and as thick as a full-grown adult is tall. The arrow pulls a string over the branch, which is then used to pull up a heavier line, which ultimately pulls up a climbing rope. Using ascenders to prevent damage to the tree, the climbers make their way to the branch, where they repeat the process, slowly making their way up the trunk. Rope after rope, ascent after ascent, the group summits the tree, and when they reach the top, Salette finds something he didn't expect. Over hundreds, maybe thousands of years, and some of these trees are that old, wind, weather, insects, and age have caused deadfalls to accumulate at the canopy of the forest, creating a latticework of debris which is supported by healthy branches. The dead material slowly rots away, creating a rich soil for seeds that falls on the debris pile. It's like a big compost heap. Over the centuries, dust from the atmosphere accumulates fractions of a millimeter per year until today, there are pockets of soil up there, hundreds of feet above the ground. Seeds from the air and from passing birds land in the soil and sprout, and the coastal fog arrives every day like clockwork, enveloping the canopy in a wet blanket that soaks the soil. Ferns sprout, mosses grow, saplings take root, Lichens spread their folios bodies outward, and before long, healthy branches that support branches that died centuries ago support rich humus below a soil bed that's several feet thick in places, making possible a meadow perched hundreds of feet above the forest floor. And in that new bioclime live insects and amphibians and microscopic creatures that are found nowhere else on Earth. They're unique to these aerial meadows. But let's get back to the forest for a moment, as interesting as that is. Trees are interesting creatures, and in this episode, I want to explore a little bit about how they work. If you think about it, they're basically big batteries. In fact, the biggest batteries on Earth. The organisms that make up the animal kingdom manage to trap and use 0.1% of the energy from the sun 
trees capture more than 50% of it. Now, that's impressive, and it's important. Now, the trunk of a tree is made up of five distinct layers. The bark, which protects the tree from injury and fire and disease. Phloem, which channels food in the form of sugar from the leaves down to the rest of the tree. Cambium, which is a really thin layer that's only about two cells thick, but which is the growth layer for the tree. Sapwood, which is sometimes called xylem, the youngest tissue in the trunk that transports water and minerals up the tree from the roots to the leaves and branches. And finally, heartwood, which is old, dead xylem that provides structural support, although it often rots away, leaving a hollow tree. But here's the really interesting thing. The plumbing in a tree works like plumbing anywhere. Water is carried up through the xylem in a process called transpiration. Evaporation from the leaves at the top of the tree creates a pressure imbalance that causes the water to flow upward from the roots toward the canopy. But at about 100 feet, the model breaks down because at 100 feet, the pressure of the water column in the xylem equals atmospheric pressure and the water can't rise any higher. I mean, physics is physics. So how does the tree get water to its highest branches, not to mention to the canopy of leaves? Well, the answer, it turns out, is really interesting. Some of the trees that Sillette and his colleagues are working hard to protect are 300 and 400 feet tall. To get the water they need to survive, they've adapted to the environment in which they live. Instead of depending exclusively on water that's pulled upward from their roots, these trees also pull moisture from the air itself, absorbing it into the leaf surfaces from the dense wet fog that rolls in every evening from the ocean. There's a reason that these particular trees live so close to the coast and nowhere else. A transpiration is powerful enough to lift water and dissolve minerals pretty high in the tree, and it will do that as long as water is evaporating through the leaves. In extremely humid weather, or if the leaf pores, the stomata as they're called, shut down for the night, the flow stops until evaporation resumes again later. Now another interesting thing that can happen in trees is something called cavitation. This happens when the surface tension of the water in the little xylem channels is so strong that some of the water actually vaporizes, creating air gaps in the flow that disrupt the ability of the water to flow higher. Now, usually the plant can overcome this problem by itself, but sometimes it disrupts the flow and sometimes badly. But here's what's really interesting. Now, some of you may have heard Mark Twain's famous quote, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Well, having lived in the Bay Area for 17 years or so, believe me, I get it. Anybody who has ever attended an afternoon summer baseball game at Candlestick Park who didn't think to bring a heavy coat knows what I'm talking about. The fog comes in off the Pacific every afternoon, and it is cold and wet, and it is miserable. But here's the cool part about that, no pun intended. During the summer, coastal redwoods can get more than half of their moisture from the fog. We know this because, among others, physicist Daniel Fernandez of California State University in Monterey Bay did a reasonably long-term experiment to measure the water content of the fog. He built fog collectors and placed them in the forest. They're basically boxes that were about a meter square in which the moisture from the fog would condense. When he measured the condensation, he found that on one particularly wet day, his boxes collected 39 liters of water from the fog. That's 10 gallons per square meter. That's a lot of water. In 1998, Todd Dawson, a biologist from UC Berkeley, used isotope analysis to prove that redwoods absorb fog directly through their leaves. But he went even farther. 
Some of these trees are more than 2,000 years old, which means that a lot of climate history is stored in their annual growth rings. By analyzing the oxygen isotopes locked in the cellulose in each ring, Dawson was able to determine how much of the water used each year came from summer fog and how much of it came from winter rain, because the isotopes are different. It also told him whether each year was warm or cold, wet or dry. Now here's the challenge that we face today. As the climate warms, and it is warming, the coastal fog diminishes, and this could be a bad thing for the coastal redwoods, especially if they're counting on having that water source available to them. You know, it's interesting to me that trees are a combination of complex, sophisticated plumbing, powerful batteries to store energy, the most efficient storage mechanism for solar power on the planet, and are members of an ecosystem that that forms a complex network to exchange vast amounts of information with each other. But that, that's a topic for another episode. Thank you for listening. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard.